Welcome to Living the Questions, a podcast of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Cheyenne. Thank you for joining us. Here on Living the Questions, we wrestle. We wrestle with life's dilemmas, we wrestle with current events, and we wrestle with what it means to live lives of integrity. We hope that you find some community, some comfort, and some hope in this time together. To learn more about our congregation, you can visit our website at uucheyenne.org. Welcome, y'all. As we begin today, I, f- I feel that I must start with acknowledging the loss of one of Unitarian Universalism's greatest advocates, activists, freedom fighters, organizers. Um, Their name was Alandria Williams. They most recently served as a co-moderator of our Unitarian Universalist Association, but E's work goes so, so, so far beyond their most recent position. Um, And they influenced not only the course of our association, but the course of the lives and trajectories of so many leaders within it. Um, May we find ourselves called forward to the work of fighting for freedom by Elandria's legacy and by their life. Blessings, Alandria. You have become an ancestor, and we could hope for no more powerful ancestor than you. So the question that we are called to work with this week is, how can the work of atonement refocus and realign our priorities? We're going to look at this through a variety of lenses, through the lens of the Jewish celebration of Yom Kippur, through the lens of our own universalist heritage, and through the lens of what's happening in the world around us today um, and every day. So beloveds, with Alandria in our hearts and with the long legacies of freedom fighters, both within our denomination and from our wider world, we prepare to wrestle with this question. Let's get started. To begin our exploration of this question about atonement and how it can refocus and realign our priorities and help us better understand really the work that we are called to do in our world, I want to start us with how this question is showing up in the news right now. And the way that this question keeps showing up both this week and it feels like just about every week is for me in wrapped up in this question of what does it mean to seek justice in an unjust system? Um, yesterday, there was a press conference about the grand jury de- choices around indicting or not indicting the police officers who... Um, were involved in killing Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky. And um, 
none of the police officers were indicted for any of the actions that actually killed Breonna Taylor. Um, they were indicted. Uh, one of them was indicted for um, wanton endangerment um, for the bullets that went into a neighboring apartment building. And so I just keep coming back to that question. What does it mean to seek justice in an unjust system? And it can feel like we're sort of in this uh, cycle of there being a high-profile incident of police violence, an incident of a police officer using force in a way that injures or kills a Black person here in the United States. And then there's anger, and there's this outpouring of outrage, and then um, there's a sense of kind of hope that we're going to see the systems that are in place to hold police officers accountable for their actions spring into work, right? That we're going to have a grand jury, we're going to have an investigation, there's going to be accountability in some way. And, and I just keep thinking as we think of that cycle, what does it mean to seek justice in an unjust system? What does accountability look like when we feel like and we, we know that the system is failing us, that it's failing black people, it's failing the most vulnerable among us, it's failing our trans and gender nonconforming siblings, right? The system is failing us and it has been failing us for a long time. So we keep seeking justice from this unjust system and that while right, we want to hold people accountable with the tools that we have, I think that that's only part of what accountability, what atonement, what um, justice looks like in these situations. Because when I wrestle with the question of how atonement and the work of atonement, both within our own lives and within our broader communities, how can it refocus, realign, and, and reinvigorate our priorities? Is that that work, for me, can help us see possibility beyond the system we know. Because it can be easy to get caught up in this cycle of feeling frustrated that we're not getting the accountability that we want or that organizers aren't getting the accountability that they're hoping for out of an unjust system, out of the system of policing as it currently exists in the United States. And for me, the reality is that we need to start seeing possibility beyond the system that we know, right? That if we feel like we can't get justice from an unjust system, then that means we need to see a possibility beyond that system. We need to see what accountability, what responsibility, what reparations, what those things look like, what safety looks like beyond the system we know. And the framing of atonement, the framing that this is soul work, rather than just policy work, for me, it is an invitation to, to really engage that visioning, that possibility. 
if you're interested in kind of a starting place in terms of seeing possibility um, beyond the system we currently have, I would recommend uh, an essay in the September issue of Vanity Fair by lawyer and activist um, Josie Duffy Rice. It's excellent. And it's just a, it's almost like a meditation on what we have and what we need and what justice could look like if we're willing to see some possibility beyond the system that we already know. As we dive deeper into our question about atonement and how the work of that atonement can refocus and realign our priorities, I want to ground us first in the universalist branch of our theological heritage. And specifically, I want to ground us in the work and words of John Murray. John Murray was an Englishman who was influenced by a number of different thinkers and preachers uh, over in England, um, but eventually fell on hard times, suffered some um, significant personal losses, did a term in debtor's prison, uh, and was all around struggling with life. And so he did the thing that white British men did when they were uh, down on their luck, which is that he decided to sail for what was to him the new world. And it would eventually, a few years after his arrival here, become the United States. And John Murray preached his first sermon on September 30th, 1770, here in the U.S. And so we're coming up on the 250th anniversary of his sermon uh, just a little bit inland from the coast of New Jersey, because the story goes that John Murray's ship from England had gotten moored on a sandbar or some other ocean obstruction. Um, and so he was stuck in New Jersey, waiting for the winds to change. And so on September 30th, 1770, John Murray preached a gospel of a loving God at the little chapel on the farm that belonged to a man named Thomas Potter. And this loving gospel, this loving God, was so different from the Calvinist Christianity that was the dominant sort of religious strain in a lot of places in the in the, the U.S. at that time or the land that would become the U.S., because this, right, that Calvinism taught us that we were just like totally wretched little human beings who are desperately in need of God's saving power, um, but that that saving power was only going to be available to a very few of us. And so here comes John Murray with this gospel that, yeah, we are human beings in all of our struggle and folly and that God loves each and every one of us, loves us enough to believe that our eternal souls deserve salvation. Each and every one of us. The framework and the language that John Murray couched all of this in was right, distinctly and particularly Christian. Um, early universalists and some universalists still today are Christian and and yet, I think about how that 
line of thought, that line of salvation for all people in all times, in all places, in all states of, of being, how that line of thought shows up for us today and how that shapes our approach to atonement, how that shapes our approach to the work of repair and repairing relationship among one another. I want to leave us with these words from John Murray. Go out into the highways and byways of America, your new country. Give the people blanketed with a decaying and crumbling Calvinism, something of your new vision. You may possess only a small light, but uncover it. Let it shine. Use it in order to bring more light and understanding to the hearts and minds of men. Give them not hell, but hope and courage. Do not push them deeper into their theological despair, but preach the kindness and everlasting love of God. An unexpected buzzword this election season has been cancel culture. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, cancel culture is, uh, depending on who's using it, Uh, Some version of the idea that if you are not politically correct enough, a mythical mob of leftist Twitter users is going to come after you and cancel you. Um, And it gets tossed around as this idea that somehow uh, like the left is out of control. We're just out here canceling people left and right. And it is used in my opinion, to shut down attempts at accountability, attempts at saying, hey, the way you're behaving is unacceptable and we don't have to accept your unacceptable behavior. But it gets tossed around as this sort of boogeyman um, that we're going to lose our freedom of speech, we're going to lose our freedom of thought, you can't say anything anymore for fear of the cancel mob coming for you. And I just want to take this moment to think about how that narrative around the, you know, the dangers of cancel culture um, impacts our capacity to talk about uh, the work of atonement as people of faith and the ways that that, um, that narrative that somehow accountability and freedom are opposed to one another hinders our capacity to do atonement work as Unitarian Universalists. So to get started, we're going to reach way back into the Hebrew Bible uh, to the book of Jonah. And Jonah is an interesting prophet, an interesting character in the, the narratives of the Hebrew Bible. And so the book of Jonah is traditionally read in its fullness uh, at one of the Yom Kippur prayer services in the Jewish tradition. And the the story of Jonah, the sort of the, the cliff notes, for those of you who do not recall, is that uh, Jonah is 
told to by God to go and offer a prophecy and to prophesy a warning to the people of Nineveh and to the Ninevites who are not uh, Jewish or not Hebrew in the way that Jonah is. And so Jonah, you know, flees from this task and ends up in the belly of a fish and then almost gets eaten, but then escapes and says, fine, I'll go to Nineveh. And um, this is where the phrase sackcloth and ashes comes from in our popular parlance, right? Because the Ninevites hear uh, Jonah's prophecy and they are like, yep, we're on it. We're going to put on our sackcloth and ashes. We're going to repent. We're going to like, we're going to even do like our animals are repenting. We are the most repenting people you have ever seen. And so God spares uh, the Ninevites. And Jonah is just this deeply conflicted prophet um, who says, you know, hey, like God, you said you were going to cancel the Ninevites, God. And I said you were going to cancel the Ninevites if they didn't repent. But now that they've repented and you have spared them, I, I look like I was just being silly, like I was being an alarmist. And so it's this interesting righteous anger that Jonah has about this sense of both fearing God's wrath in his own life, but wishing that God's wrath could be real for the people of Nineveh. Um, and so the book of Jonah is this curious reversal of the typical prophet story. As contemporary Unitarian Universalists, I think that we can see in it the danger of wanting God to reflect our own thoughts and desires and sense of how the world works rather than God reflecting the fullness of their own divine sense of how the world works and who's deserving of love and who's deserving of salvation. And before we mosey along through what it means to do this work of atonement, um, I want to just take a moment to acknowledge a way that I feel like our theological forebears um, sometimes fell short. And that is that oftentimes in their urgency to impart to people that, you know, folks sense that God must be wrathful and full of outrage um, was you know, not theologically true, they often spun a narrative about how that is the old God, the Hebrew God that Jesus came and corrected, fixed, replaced, what have you. Um, and that that narrative, which is sometimes called supersessionism in religious circles, is, is a dangerous one um, and one that has been tied up in anti-Semitic sentiment and thought for, for hundreds of years. And so as we see the ways that our ancestors like John Murray and like Hosea Ballou are inviting us to see um, that human beings 
are the perpetrators of wrath rather than the divine, that we not tie that into a framework of the idea that somehow the Hebrew Bible was the old version and then the New Testament came along and corrected it. Hosea Ballou wrote and preached a lot, but the piece of his writing that survives the most is called the Treatise on Atonement. And in it, he raises a lot of questions and lays out a, you know, dense argument for universal salvation, for the idea that um, in the end, all of us, every one of us will be reconciled unto God. And in it, he offers this interesting image. And that image is of um, what he describes as the deceived astronomer. And so this deceived astronomer, uh, according to Ballou, fancies that uh, they've seen a monster in the sun. But in reality, there's no monster in the sun. It's a fly that has landed on the glass of the astronomer's telescope. The astronomer calls a congress of all the other astronomers. They look and they see it. Everyone sees that there is this awful big monster in the sun. And uh, they consult about the size of the monster, how long it's been there, uh, how soon the monster is going to destroy the sun. They analyze it. They uh, you know, talk about how it must be able to sustain such heat on the sun, You know how all kinds of judgments, and they have debates about it, and they all quarrel about it, and they form councils and have decrees and all of that. To Baloo, Human beings who see God as wrathful and full of fury and rage are like the astronomers who see the monster in the sun when really what they're seeing is a fly on the lens of their telescope. And that image to me is so powerful The idea that when we see God as wrathful or when we see the divine as desiring retribution, what we're really seeing is the fallibility and the struggle of our own lives and our own world, and we are projecting it onto the divine rather than seeing the divine as it truly is. And so as we think about the work of atonement, I think about the ways that we, whether it's in the actions of other people or the actions of the universe or the actions of time or whatever it is, I think about the ways that we are seeing a monster in the sun when in fact it is just a fly on the telescope. Or even worse, it's something about, it's a, it's a fly in our own eye. It's our own stuff. And I've been uh, turning over the phrase in my mind, and I can't remember where I heard it or from whom I heard it. So if you have an attribution for this, drop me a line at minister at uuscheyenne.org and let me know. Um, which is that 
if you have a God who hates all of the same people as you do, you can be pretty sure that you've made God in your own image rather than the other way around. So in his treatise on atonement, one of the things that Hosea Ballou is inviting us to see is that in this question of atonement, of salvation, of reconciliation um, among humanity and the divine, that um, God doesn't have beef with people. It's the other way around, is how I would very crudely summarize it. And I will read you a, a brief passage of the way that uh, Hosea Ballou would state that. Atonement signifies reconciliation or satisfaction, which is the same. It is a being unreconciled to truth and justice which needs reconciliation, and it is a dissatisfied being which needs satisfaction. Therefore, I raise my inquiry on the question, is God the unreconciled or dissatisfied party? Or is it man? Which is, I think, a an, an eloquent and old-timey way of saying, do people have beef with God or does God have beef with people? Um, and I would say that, um, that like my universalist forebear, the Reverend Ballou, that it is it is humanity that is unreconciled to truth and justice, rather than, um, rather than the divine that's mad at us, or upset with us, or looking to extract some cosmic payment from us. Rather, it's that we feel a restlessness, an unreconciledness, a, a dissatisfaction with our understanding of the intersection of our humanity and the world's divinity and the humanity of the people around us. And so I, I think about how for me, atonement is what happens at the intersection of the human and the divine. Or perhaps if, uh, if even the language of the divine feels inaccessible to you, I would say that it happens at the intersection of our humanness and our sense of who we wish we were or wish we could be together. It happens in the gap between our lived reality and the world we wish we could be building together, right? Atonement, the work of atonement, not the theory of atonement or the treatise on atonement or, um, a, you know, some fancy pants theology book about atonement, right? Not those kinds of atonement, but the work of atonement, the blood, sweat, and tears of atonement of figuring out how to be in relationship with one another in the face of unspeakable hurt and harm um, 
that that happens in the space between who we are as human beings and the world that we know is possible. It's about what what becomes possible when we're willing to see the limitations of who we are as human beings, when when we're willing to acknowledge the harm that has been done by our hand in our names. When we acknowledge that we just don't always know and that that means that sometimes we need to come together and figure out how to be reconciled to the truth, how to be reconciled to justice. And that that doesn't mean, you know, saying an obligatory prayer on Sunday morning or Friday evening or whenever it may be and uh, um, believing that that is the work of atonement. But instead seeing the work of atonement as an invitation to know our limits, to know the ways we've been wrong, to to see the ways that we are um, seeing a fly on the lens of our telescope and suggesting that it's a monster in the sun. That the, the work of atonement is engaging with people's real lived experiences. And we started by talking about cancel culture, about this idea that somehow freedom and accountability need to be seen as opposed to one another. I would say that universalism, right, the idea that it's not that, um, that it's not that, uh, God is mad at us, and so we better start acting right, Um, or that we should be afraid of being canceled, whether by a mob on Twitter or by the Lord, um, that then so we should modify our behavior out of that fear. But that in universalism, atonement is about reconciling ourselves to our highest aspirations for truth and justice, our highest aspirations for who we can be as a community. And that in reconciling ourselves to those ideas, to those concepts, to that divine movement in our lives and in our universe, we need one another, right? Because if it's just that I need to be reconciled to God, because I, you know, did a bad thing. And so I need to apologize to God somehow, right? If it's just that, I can do that on my own. I can do that without talking to anybody. I can do that just in the the solace of my own room. But if atonement is about a community ethic of reconciliation, that, that has to happen where the rubber meets the road. That has to happen in relationship with other people. That has to happen in relationship with our world. That has to happen in relationship with one another. And that's not to say that that's always easy. I sometimes joke that I'm grateful to be a universalist because that means that God loves everybody so that I don't have to. 
It means that I have to put in a good faith effort at being part of a community with an ethic of accountability and reconciliation. And so perhaps in all of this wondering about what it means, right, what it means to be a person who is seeking to be reconciled to truth and justice, may we hear in this an invitation to get clear about to whom we are accountable, to get clear about the ways in which we are going to model accountability to one another and to our wider world, um, and the ways in which we are going to say uh, that we're not here to cancel anybody, right? And God certainly isn't here to cancel anybody. But that we are here to say that we believe that we could be more together. We could build a world grounded in truth and justice and love and a loving image of the divine. But that it's up to us to actually live that out, to actually work out what it means, to actually wrestle and argue and get in the muck and mud and filth of all of it together to discern what it means to live and to love and to be in community in a way that allows us to feel reconciled to the holy, to the divine, to our highest calling, however we name it. Some of us, maybe even most of us, get it wrong and spend three days in the belly of a fish and um, need to get worked on in order to figure it out. But I would rather bear the cost of figuring it out than bear the cost of a world where we see community and freedom as opposed to one another rather than part of the same movement of the divine in our world. Hmm. Maybe so, friends. Amen. Thank you for listening. Your presence matters to us. Whether you are here in Cheyenne or across the globe, we are grateful that you would spend this time with us. If you'd like to connect more with our community, you can visit our website at uucheyenne.org. I'm the Reverend Hannah Roberts Vilnave, and on behalf of a grateful community, thank you. We'll see you soon.